0: All right, Acts chapter 1, we are reading once again from verse 9. We're really doing two things at once here, and the two things are we are working our way through the entire book of Acts, and we're just really getting started with that but I've I've kind of had us camp here in these few verses at the beginning of chapter 1 starting in verse 9 and we're doing kind of a mini-series within a series on the subject of the ascension of Christ this passage that I'm about to read again is simply the ascension of Christ from the eyewitness perspective of the disciples that were there that day to witness the event but we're broadening our study out to um more more of the uh in a sense the the theological reasons behind the event itself but let me reread the passage acts 1 9 and when he had said these things as they were looking on he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight while they were gazing into heaven as he went behold two men stood by them in white robes and said men of galilee why do you stand looking into heaven this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so in our, in our mini-series, what we've done is we did do a study on the ascension from the disciples perspective as it's simply described here in acts one we also did a couple of studies of the ascension from heaven's perspective what heaven was looking at in a sense as this event was taking place because at a certain point he disappears into a cloud and he's out of their natural physical observation here on earth but he is coming into even clearer focus from heaven's perspective from that point forward. What happened after he disappeared into the cloud, so to speak? And then in the last few weeks, what we've done is begun a a study through a list of 12 significant reasons why Jesus had to ascend back into heaven so the reasons we've covered so far are six in total out of those 12 he ascended in order to be reunited with the father he ascended in order to be restored to the glory that he previously enjoyed in the father's presence he ascended in order to secure now and forever a place for all of those who truly belong to him in heaven He ascended in order to lead a host of people. These are all of the Old Testament, Old Covenant believers in the lord he led them into heaven this was their moment to enter into heaven for the very first time with jesus leading that procession as the very first person that had ever entered into heaven from earth and then uh, the last two which we covered in our study last week he ascended in order to send to his people to his church to you and i as well now the holy spirit and then he ascended in order to fill all things in all of creation in all of God's known and revealed universe as head over all things now that leads us up to reason number seven and for that we're going to return to a passage we read before for one of the other reasons and that's Ephesians chapter four if you join me over there Ephesians chapter 4 we studied this or looked at this passage in relationship to Jesus leading a host of people into heaven and that is uh, certainly uh, declared and focused on here but it's actually aimed at an an extended or additional reason beyond that which I want to focus on now we're going to read from Acts 4 verse 7 And I'm going to, excuse me, not Acts, Ephesians 4, verse 7. I'm going to read through to the end of verse 14. And then I'll go back and highlight a couple of key points from it. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and it being a quote now from the Old Testament scriptures, and specifically Psalm 68. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. That's the part we focused on before. And then this second part, which will be our focus at this point in our study. And he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ I am not going to do a full-blown exposition of all of the verses that I just read. If I were to attempt to do that, we'd be doing a mini-series within a mini-series. And I'd never get back to the original series. But I do want to highlight a couple of key points from this passage. Jesus ascended in order to give what he describes here, what Paul describes here in this passage, in order to give gifts to men the question is which men and what gifts or is he talking about the which men is the men in focus here are not all human beings not everyone in the entire planet not all of humanity but a specific group within humanity that he's most concerned about and that specific group we call the church not just any particular individual local church and not just any particular denomination of churches, but the church, what we call the church universal from a theological perspective. The church of all of those who truly know him, all of those who are saved by him, all of those who are truly born of his spirit, and he now identifies as his children. When Jesus ascended, he gave gifts to them, and exclusively to them so then the, qu- the second question is what gifts did he give to them and why is it such a big deal how many of you enjoy receiving a nice gift so Sandy and I again received a nice gift this morning we appreciate your expression of love and appreciation toward us in the birthday gift that you just I haven't opened it yet but I'm anticipating that it's a nice gift it, it has consistently been throughout the years and we do appreciate it. It's a blessing to receive a nice gift. Do you have any one experience in life? And I'm not asking for you to tell me, I'm just asking you to think about it. Do you have any one experience in life where you can think, you know what, this is probably the best gift I've ever received. You know, I, like maybe I remember this one birthday above all others, or I remember this one anniversary above all others. That gift was amazing. That gift was special. I can, I'll never forget that gift. This is one of those moments, but rises in significance above all of those moments for us in that you can imagine how great the gift is because of who's the one that's doing the giving. This is the Lord Jesus himself now in the fullness of his resurrected and ascended glory now redirecting once he arrives back into heaven once he is restored to the fullness of his glory once he sits again upon the throne that belongs to him he immediately redirected his attention not just to the things in heaven that were going on immediately surrounding the throne But he directed his attention to what mattered most to him on earth. And not just at the present moment of history that was going on at that time on earth. He was concerned about that, but he was considering even you and I in the moment that he did something special as he gave the most special gift that could possibly be given, I would say, second only to the gift of salvation itself. The gift of salvation, an amazing gift. But the gift that he gave as he ascended and was glorified and then directed his heart's concern toward his church was easily the second greatest gift ever. Now I'm going to blend the gift focus. Of what this passage is is all concerned about, with the idea of what we 've already covered in our study last week, which is he poured out his holy spirit, and the Holy Spirit himself is described in scripture as a gift, but he didn 't the holy Spirit didn 't come into your heart and he didn 't come into your life in order to just hang out passively when the Holy Spirit entered the church and of course the The circumstance of that is still ahead of us in our Acts study in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But when the Holy Spirit entered the church, he did so with specific intentions and purposes in his heart and mind. And the focus here of what, the primary purpose of what he was coming to accomplish, I'm talking about the entry of the Holy Spirit into the church, is this verse 8 again when he ascended on high he being the lord jesus he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men so the question is what are those gifts there's a double aspect of the gifts that he gave and both are highlighted in the passage to follow let's skip down to verse 11 and he gave the lord jesus as the ultimate gift giver Uh, let me let me stop and say it this way I've, i've asked you about your experience of receiving gifts are you aware that some people are better gift givers than others some people have a better sense of how to give a gift that really matters versus others have you ever received a gift that was given with great intentions but it just kind of fell flat as you received it what i mean by that is that you weren't appreciative of the thought behind the gift but the gift itself maybe wasn't that amazing or significant or needed or even wanted or desired you know we have jokes about you know receiving another pair of socks for christmas or things like that um, you know, I don't know what would represent your less than significant gifts. But this passage is all about the gift that the Lord Jesus gave to his church and he is the ultimate gift giver. This is what he gave. First element, first aspect of the special gift that he gave. He gave the apostles. Now this isn't talking about giving something to the apostles. This is talking about giving the apostles as a gift to whom to the church he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers now he just mentions five roles in church life and these are not the only five roles but these five roles share a an an important similarity they define a category of church life and that category of church life is what we would refer to as church leadership and in that understanding of the functioning of church leadership within the life of the church what paul wants us to understand and really the holy spirit speaking through paul as he writes this down wants us to understand is that church life as we know it and experience it in terms of not just what our less than ideal experience of church life is but what god intends church life to be like and the experience of church life to be like church life is dependent in its quality of life upon the gifts that the lord has given to the church and those gifts first and foremost should be understood as the significance of leadership gifts to the body of christ now i'll just take a brief moment to describe my own experience of this throughout the years i've been walking with the lord i came to know the lord in february of 1979 so what is that now 43 years ago i came to know the lord And when I came to know the Lord, you've heard me describe this before, but I I don't tire of rehearsing it. I knew nothing. I understood nothing. I was capable of accomplishing for God's name and glory and service nothing. I was lost, as lost can possibly be, the moment immediately before my salvation. And now I'm saved, and I know one thing, but only one thing. Jesus is my savior. I knew that, I understood that, I experienced that, but that's all I knew, that's all I experienced. Now it is true that I began shortly after that, by the grace of God, I got a hold of a Bible, because I I wasn't saved in a traditional church setting, where someone would come up to me afterwards and say, here, let let me make sure you have a copy of the Bible to read. So I didn't even get my first copy of the Bible until approximately a month or two maybe it was after I was saved. And when I did, I started to read it. I started to, to soak it in. I started to devour it. And I learned some things from it. But you've all had this experience. It was certainly my experience. I was reading a lot of stuff that I had no idea what it meant. i I just i wanted to understand it and i was reading it because i knew that this you know the bible was somehow related to what god wanted me to understand and so i would read it and i would want to understand it and some of the stuff i did get but mm, the stuff i'm teaching you now i had no clue and no understanding and no way that i could see to get from where i was to where i am today So how did I get from that spot to where I am today, standing behind this podium, teaching you and hopefully teaching you in a way that you understand the things from God's word better because you listen to me than you would without listening to me? How did I get from there to here? One avenue and one avenue only. The influence of special leadership gifts in the body of Christ As I met them, some of them personally, face-to-face, some of them just by being in a congregation, some of them over the radio, some of them through books, some of them just through hearing things from other people about what they had to say and what they were doing in their service to the Lord, but being influenced and impacted by special leadership gifts. Now, you've heard me mention some of these before um i'll never forget when the lord first caused me to come into proximity to the teaching ministry of david martin lloyd jones who was a pastor during the world war ii era in london england and he after i after i was saved he was already with the lord he i think he died in 1976 i was saved in 1979 so he he had died and gone to be with the lord three years before i even came to know the lord and i didn't hear about him i didn't learn about him in the very first year of of being a christian it was probably some five to seven years after becoming a believer that i learned about him but once I did learn about him, I, I started setting money aside. In those days, in order to read uh, theology, you had to actually buy something. You, you've heard about these things, but you probably don't know too much about them. It's called books. Um, there was no internet back in those days. Uh, so if you wanted to learn, you had to actually purchase physical copies of books and open the covers and turn the pages and read these little black squiggly marks on the, on the page. And I loved doing that. I learned uh, how much I could benefit from that. So I invested in his uh, series on the book of Romans. And I also invested in his series on the book of Ephesians. I'm not necessarily recommending that you go out and buy them. They're very expensive now. Um, but if you can afford it, if you can invest in them, they're, they're a worthy investment. You've heard me say this before. I learned how to teach by reading Lloyd-Jones. I learned how to teach by reading Lloyd-Jones. It doesn't mean I'm a clone of Lloyd-Jones. If you've read his books and if you've listened to him, you, there are audio free audio recordings, by the way, that are available now that they do have the internet. Um, you can get audio recordings of his and listen to them. You'll find I'm not a clone of his, but you, if you listen carefully, there are some definite similarities in how I approach a text compared to how he approaches a text. How I convey... Uh, hopefully an an understandable meaning from a passage or a concept that we're focused on in our study time and i would i would probably credit at least 75 percent of my teaching ministry and the way that i go about preparing and then delivering the things that i've learned so that you can learn them along with me to lloyd jones influence i am 100 percent convinced that the lord led me to read his books years and years ago 40 years ago almost i started reading his uh his teachings through those books now he's not the only one of course i've been influenced by many others rc Sproul was a a big influence for me especially at a certain key point in my own development in the lord uh A few other names you know the john macarthur's of the world and a few others have had some influence on me as well uh in each case though the ones that influenced me the most were the ones that in my discernment took god's word the most seriously and were most devotedly committed to an accurate and faithful uh, exposition of his word now i'm just using myself as an example the point is this i never would have gotten from where i started to where i am today without the influence of special leadership gifts evidenced in the lives of those men that I just mentioned. Gifts simply equal, think of it this way, grace. Gifts equal grace. And when we're talking about special leadership gifts, we're talking about a special measure of God's leadership grace that he chooses to pour into specific individuals. It's his choice, it's his plan, it's his purpose not to pour the same measure or the same kind of grace in each member of the body of Christ. He divvies up his grace and he gives certain kinds of grace to each individual within the body and a greater measure of grace in those areas to some than he does to all that's leadership grace and why does he do that let's look more carefully at the passage verse 11 again he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and the teachers for what reason to equip the saints who are the saints you are the saints in the in the accurate context of the passage the saints are every member of the true body of christ he gave these gifts to equip the saints to equip someone means to make you capable of accomplishing something that you would not be able to accomplish unless you were equipped to accomplish it to equip the saints for what for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood the goal is that every member of the body of christ reach a measure of spiritual maturity that's measured by christ himself the only way we can get from where we start brand new believers in christ born again But spiritual infants, to where he wants us to reach, spiritual maturity, is through the powerful influences of leadership grace in the body of Christ. Now, once that leadership influence is exerted on your maturity growth, this is what's to happen. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 13, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful. Schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The goal is for every one of us to grow up. And as we grow up, we become, going back up to verse, look at verse, um, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You've heard me make this emphasis before, but it's one that n- really just doesn't get emphasized enough. The traditional perspective in Christianity, I'm talking about modern Christianity is, those that are leaders do the work of ministry, everybody else is the observer. So like I'm one of the shepherds of the church, I'm one of the elders of the church, so it's my job to do the work of ministry, it's your job just to show up at church, put the money in the box, be quiet, listen to me, and then go home. That's your job. That's not the model that's being described here. The model that's being described here and what's in God's heart for his church is this. Yes, God pours a special measure of grace into me in order to have an influence on you. But the goal of you being influenced by that special measure of grace in and through me is so that you can accomplish the work of ministry. My work is an equipping work. Your work is a complete the work of ministry assignment now we've talked many many times as a church about the concept that every true believer has an assignment from the lord my job is to get you ready for your assignment to equip you to help you to see what your assignment is to help you to understand the measure of grace god has given you for your assignment and to help you actually get to work on fulfilling the assignment god has given to you the church is to be an active body not just one small portion of the body represented by leadership being active and everybody else passive but the entire body being actively engaged in fulfilling the assignments that the lord has given us now a church that is all understanding this principle and participating in this principle is what we would call a truly fruitful church And without the influence of God's grace gifts, first in the leadership, but present in every single one of us. Because if you have an assignment, you have your own measure of grace from the Lord. It may or may not be a leadership grace, but it is a grace to accomplish something for his name's sake. And when we're all doing what God has called us to do, we are a fruitful body, and without that influence, we are a fruitless body body and you know what the lord does with fruitless branches that are connected to the vine of the body of christ he cuts them off throws them in a pile and burns them up we don't want to be among the fruitless so why did jesus have to ascend back to heaven he ascended in order to give special grace to his church next reason That was reason number seven. This is number eight. Why did Jesus need to ascend? He ascended. This one should be obvious and yet it commonly gets overlooked. Jesus ascended in order to set up the second coming of Christ. Let's head back to Acts chapter one. Now, how much time elapses in the agenda of God between the ascension and the second coming how much time how much time how much time i'm asking how much time we don't know we're not sure how much time so far two thousand years approximately Maybe another two thousand years, or it may be two days. We just don't know the timing of the second coming. The Lord makes that super clear throughout His um, addressing the subject. But what we do know is this: His ascension is connected to the second coming, even though there's a time gap—a planned and purpose time gap between those two events. Rereading the portion that we read again this morning, verse nine. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, the disciples, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. We've already identified these two men. They are angels of the Lord, messengers of the Lord. What is their message? In this case, it's a simple but very important message. And their message is to link the ascension to the second coming. They say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, who just ascended, in other words, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So his ascent will be followed by a second descent. I say second descent because what was the first descent of the Lord? It's what we call his incarnation, his birth in the manger of Bethlehem. He descended into what Ephesians describes as the lower parts of existence, which is the earth, lower in relationship or comparison to heaven itself. He left the higher place and he descended into the lower place in order to become like one of us but then at the end of his mission at the end of his assignment the end of the accomplishment of the plan of salvation he ascended back to heaven not and this is important for us to just remember and to hang our hopes and faith on he ascended to not stay there forever he is coming back again now let me just share two passages from Thessalonians one from first one from second uh, we recently studied through this first one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as part of our Thursday night Bible study, but I just want to highlight one key verse from it. 1 Thessalonians 4, this is a passage that is focused on what the great event that we call the second coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. And I'm looking for this one key word in the verse. That I've already emphasized. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The ascension establishes the certainty of the coming descension. I don't know about you. I I do know about you, but I, I don't know about you, but I count on the future dissension of Christ into this world. Jerry was referencing all the ways that the world is currently going haywire. Just to be clear, the world is always haywire. Always. But there are some pockets of history, some moments of history, where it goes even more haywire than normal. You can kind of, you know how it is, uh, you can kind of get used to a certain circumstance and even what's haywire starts to just feel normal and so i think it's important from the highest level spiritual perspective i think it's important that periodically extra haywire bursts out breaks out in world affairs just to remind people of how broken the world really is how messed up the world really is All of it because of sin, all of it because of a failure to acknowledge the Lord, to submit to Him, to bow the knee to Him, to to recognize Him for who He really is, and to then live life according to what He says is the way we should live life. I think it's important for the world to go extra haywire. But when it does, it is never more important for the church to remember that it's not always going to be this way, that the Lord, because He ascended, he will also descend it's it's a declaration by those two angels on the day of the ascension that functions like a promise because they're god's messengers they're the ones that are saying that it's going to happen he will come back in the same way that he left and when he comes back he is coming back in the fullness of his glory and that's the second passage look over in second Thessalonians chapter 1 this is also a second coming passage we won't have time to camp on it but let's just briefly read what it will be like when it happens when the second coming actually occurs verse 6 since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those that afflict you the world afflicting the church God is going to even that out. He is going to do justice at some future point. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting, this is not a common focal point of the second coming, but this is what is actually going to happen, inflicting what? Vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Right now, the gospel represents ultimate mercy, ultimate graciousness, ultimate love and fullness of expression. That's what the gospel represents to humanity. But on that day, the gospel represents something else. It'll represent God's holy and just response to stubborn rejection of that gospel graciousness and love. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. The Lord is returning. The ascension of Christ sets up and guarantees the fulfillment of the coming descension of the Lord in the great culminating event of human history that we call the second coming of Christ. All right, that leads us to our next reason. And this is um, number nine on our list of the 12 significant reasons why Jesus had to ascend. Let's head to the book of Acts chapter two now. This is... We're picking up right in the middle of the day of Pentecost. And at this point in the chapter, we'll of course, when we eventually get there, in our study through Acts, we will um, camp here a little bit longer than I will this morning. But um, what's happened at this point on the day of Pentecost is the Spirit of God has already been poured out by the Lord Jesus on his church. They're all filled with the Spirit. And now the entire city in Jerusalem has gathered to find out what's going on. Peter sees this as a golden gospel opportunity. He stands in front of the gathered crowd of unbelievers and he begins to proclaim a saving message that we call the gospel. And his message that day is one of the great, if you want to call it a sermon, I mean, you, you can fit it into the category of sermon. It's one of the great gospel proclamations that has ever taken place in all of history we're just going to grab a snippet of it and we're reading from acts chapter 2 verse 32 peter directs their attention to jesus but here at this point he's not directing their attention to jesus as they experienced him on earth He's directing their attention to Jesus that they no longer can see and what is going on with him now. This Jesus God raised up, this is a reference to the resurrection, and of that we are all witnesses. And he's not talking about we the crowd, we the apostles were eyewitnesses of his resurrection and he's proclaiming that reality to the crowd. Verse 33, now he, he takes them on a, He's acting as a tour guide and he takes them on a brief tour of the present realities of what are taking place in heaven itself around the throne of God, the throne room of God in heaven. They, the people listening to him, they can't see this, but he's saying this is what has actually already happened and what is currently continuing to take place in heaven because Jesus was raised from the dead and then Jesus ascended back to heaven. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. What does it mean to be exalted? It means to be lifted up or raised above all other things or whatever you're comparing that person to. And in this case, because the comparison is between Jesus and every other human being and Jesus and everything in existence, the comparison is he has been lifted above all people and all institutions, all things, and as we'll see in just a moment, all names. He is lifted above everyone and everything. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, meaning that only God the Father himself is accepted in terms of the exaltation of Christ. Christ is not exalted above the Father but he is exalted above all others and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for david did not ascend into the heavens but he himself says the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool Why why does he quote David? And he's quoting from Psalm 110, which is one of the most important messianic portions of prophecy in all of the Old Testament scriptures. Why does he say David did not ascend? Because when you're first reading Psalm 110, it seems like David is describing his own experience. David wrote it. It's a worship song, but it's written from a first-person perspective as though David is experiencing these things. Peter is clarifying and saying... David did write this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but he wasn't describing his experience. He was describing hundreds of years in advance the experience that Christ would have at the moment of his ascension. And in that experience, there are two lords in view, which was exceptionally confusing to Old Covenant Jewish perspective. How could there be two lords when everything in the Old Testament was emphasizing there's a singular lord? And the mystery of that, of course, we now understand in the fullness of new covenant perspective, which is, yes, there's only one Lord in terms of office, but there are two persons that fill that office, the Lord who is God the Father and the Lord who is God the Son. And so the Lord, at the point of the ascension, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here's Peter's conclusion from Psalm 110 and all that he had proclaimed leading up to this point in the message. Let all the house of Israel therefore, and I love this line, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. It's okay to not know everything in life for certain, but there's some things you need to know for certain. This is one of them. Know this for certain. That God, and this took place at the ascension of Christ, God has made him, God the Father has made God the Son, the Lord Jesus, has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the ninth reason why Jesus had to ascend was he was exalted above all things to be Lord over all things now let's turn i want to i want to briefly look at two more passages of scripture on this same point The first is in first Peter we studied through this in home church a couple of years ago it's a good that's a good quick reminder this morning first Peter chapter three in the passage i'm about to read peter makes three important declarations, three claims about Jesus in this passage. I'm going to read from the very, I'm just going to grab the last couple of words from verse 21 of chapter three, but I'm I'm going to read all of verse 22 with it. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, so Peter makes three bold and gigantic claims about Jesus. And again, this is deserving of an entire series on its own, but I'm just going to briefly review it. Claim number one, Jesus has gone into heaven. That's Peter's declaration of the reality of the ascension of Christ. Jesus died on the cross, a real sacrificial and saving death and he breathed a last breath his heart stopped beating and he died real death and then three days later he rose again from the dead and then another 40 days after that he ascended back into heaven and when he did Peter describes it simply briefly he has gone into heaven we can't see it with our physical eyes but by the spirit of god peter declares that's what actually happened and when he ascended into heaven what did he do next he sat down on the right hand of god he sat upon the throne of god you've heard me describe this so that we're not confused in heaven when you're looking at the throne of god We're not there yet, but through the eyes of faith and through the eyes of what God has revealed in Scripture, we can see this spiritually with right perspective. When you're looking at the throne of God, you're not seeing a giant throne and then a baby throne next to it. Do you understand that? When you're looking at the throne of God, you see how many thrones? One. A singular throne. So how can it be that Jesus is at the right hand of God unless there's a baby throne on the right hand of the big one. It's not God the Father you'll see sitting on the big throne and then you'll see Jesus on the, on the junior throne right next to him on the right hand side. You will not see it that way. What you will see is one single throne and one person only sitting upon that throne because God the Father is invisible that's what scripture declares i believe it it's true so you will not see him even with your spiritual eyes you will not see a physical representation of a form of god the father you will see the one sitting sitting upon that one central throne but he is described as on the right hand in a sense as if they're both sitting on the same throne and in the realist sense they are because we know from other places in scripture that in christ the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form god the father god the son and god the holy spirit all indwell the person of jesus so as he sits upon the throne he's described as being at the right hand only to clarify for our brains that are used to spatial relationships that he's not greater than the father as he sits upon the throne he's still Subject to and subservient to under the authority of the Father as He sits upon that throne, but He is in relationship to all others, the Lord who sits upon the throne. And then, so this third declaration is: angels, this third claim that Peter makes, angels who are right now in eternity, this is going to be a little bit different, but right now. Who's greater in power and glory? You or an angel? Angels. No question, if an angel were to appear in the midst of our service, none of us would be trying to claim, I'm better than that, I'm greater than that, I'm more glorious than that, I'm more powerful than that. You know, he doesn't even compare to me. We would all be awed by the, the, ex, the expression of glory and power through that angel. With angels and authorities which authorities all authorities and powers these are even those powerful influences that aren't even recognized as official authority figures angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him that's to christ who did the subjecting god the father did the subjecting for god the son that's why psalm 110 puts it kind of like sit at my right hand until i make every all of your enemies everything the footstool for your feet the footstool is what's under you under subjection to your greatness and to your authority all right and then one last passage and this is the one i think we're all most familiar with this is this is where we'll end our service today and um, Caleb, if you want to start getting the worship team ready for our final song. Uh, This is Philippians chapter 2. You should know it well. This is in a brief few verses. The story of the gospel from beginning to end. Where did the gospel story begin? It began even before Bethlehem. It began in heaven as the glorious one god the son who was seated upon the throne got up off of his throne in order to incarnate as a human being but it didn't end with his incarnation it continued with his ascension back to heaven this is the account from beginning to end philippians chapter 2 i'll start reading in verse five have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who though he was and this is before his incarnation who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning a thing to hold on to dearly so that I'll never let go of it. He he laid aside the outward expression of his equality with God the Father in order to be incarnated as a human being. But emptied himself, verse 7, By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even a saving, sacrificially saving death. Therefore, because of that, the therefore connects what's just been declared to what's about to be declared. Therefore, because he accomplished the plan of salvation and no one else could, god has highly exalted him that means he has raised him above all others god has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name now this is this is discussed and debated and christians disagree on the point of what paul's about to say i will just say it this way the name he's talking about here is not the name jesus Jesus bore that name in his life in this world and still bears that name the name he's focused on is the name Lord so that we don't just refer to him as Jesus anymore we refer to him as the Lord Jesus so that the name Jesus is associated with the name Lord they are in a sense a singular blended name now you can't think of Jesus or shouldn't Without recognizing him as Lord. So let's read on. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we have just a slight translation issue here and it's a key word it's not a bad word it's just it doesn't fully convey the point of the passage the word is should and we find that word in verse 10 so that at the name of jesus because since his ascension because he ascended because he accomplished the plan of salvation because he's been exalted by god the father above all things esv our translation, the one we study, the one we read, describes it this way. Every knee should bow. Now what does that convey? The word should there conveys what? A sense of obligation. Now, are you and I obligated to declare that Jesus Christ truly is Lord? Yes, you and I are obligated to declare that Jesus Christ truly is Lord. But is this a description or a declaration of an obligation, a human obligation, because it's not just us. He says that every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. That means everybody in the category of humanity that has ever lived. So let me, let me reread the passage from the New American Standard. We used to use the New American Standard, and it's still an excellent translation. It's an excellent study Bible. But I, in this case, I really do prefer the way they translate this verse. The New American Standard says it this way, reading again in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. Now, is the, the reason the ESV changed that is that there's some question that rises when you say every knee will bow, it leaves open the possibility of the, the, the heretical doctrinal error that there will be universal salvation, that someday everyone will eventually be saved, if every knee will bow, if every tongue will confess. This isn't a focus on salvation here. This isn't a gospel message here. This is a description and declaration by Paul the Apostle of what will take place at a specified and declared in prophecy future date in world history which is the second coming of Christ and immediately the second coming of Christ what's going to happen next on God's agenda I mean immediately after the second coming the judgment the day of judgment and at the day of judgment there's a passage that this one is based on that I just read. I won't take us back for the sake of time. Back in, if you want to read it in its original context, it's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 45. And then it's also quoted by Paul in one other New Testament letter in the book of Romans, chapter 14. And when we get to the portion that says, every knee shall bow every tongue shall confess in romans 14 it's made exceptionally clear that that will take place on the day of judgment the idea here is that right now because jesus has been exalted as lord you and i have the gracious opportunity to proclaim the truth that jesus christ is lord and for us that proclamation is a saving proclamation But on the day of judgment, every knee that has ever lived in all of human history and every tongue that's ever spoken a single word in all of human history will be required to bow and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then on the day of judgment, not in a saving way, in a sovereignly required way. You can even say it this way if it helps your understanding. It's not damaging the truth of what will happen. In a forced way, everyone will bow. Everyone will submit. Everyone will confess. And then they will go on. Those that did not confess in a saving way during the duration of their life in this world, they'll go on to their eternal rewards their eternal rewards not being favorable their their eternal rewards not being one that you would choose for yourself their reward not being the same reward that we will enjoy for all of eternity so our op- opportunity that's given to us in the gospel is we can bow in a saving way or we can bow in a sovereign way on that final day but one way or the other The lack of recognition and acknowledgement by an unbelieving and unsaved world does not diminish even to one iota the truth that Jesus is right now sitting upon the throne of God in heaven as Lord exalted over all. Let's sing.